Hey, this is Dan Blewett, and welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 29, and I have an awesome guest today, my former teammate from 2014, Daniel Herrera. So D-Ray is, uh, is a really interesting guy, and I wanted to have him on for one big reason, that he's not uh, the typical frame of a major league pitcher that uh, everyone's accustomed to. So nowadays, obviously, scouts love these you know, six foot seven, you know, 96 mile per hour, everything downhill, you know, big power guys. Um, and, and my friend D-Ray here, he's only five, six, and he was a really successful major leaguer, pitched over a hundred innings, 131 career appearances with the Cincinnati Reds, Milwaukee Brewers and New York Mets. And if you read about him online, so if you just Google him, Daniel Herrera, you'll find some really interesting articles about just a, just his personality, uh, his heart, and that's what the, one of the biggest things people talked about, that the guy has just tons and tons of guts, and that he went out there and pitched with a lot of heart, uh, was a fierce competitor, and also a really easygoing guy, and a great teammate. So without further ado, let's uh, introduce Daniel Herrera. Hey, D-Ray, how's everything out there in Brooklyn? Very good. Starting to get very cold. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was, I visited Brooklyn for the first time I guess in 2016, we had like an off day and I went over and we walked the Brooklyn Bridge and all that stuff. And I just can't believe how, I mean, there's a million people that live there, right? Yeah, more than that. Yeah, it's like its own, <laughs> it's like its own city and it's part of New York. That's just like, it's like baffling. When you fly into New York, you just keep going and you're like, when are these houses going to stop? But they like never do. No, well, I mean, I live in, in Bushwick in Brooklyn and it connects to a couple neighborhoods um, but I don't even go to Manhattan maybe like once a month. And then when I get there, I turn, look around and I don't like it. So <laughs> I shy away to the subway and go back to Brooklyn. So I'm pretty happy here. It's been, uh, it's been great. What, uh, what do you not like about Manhattan? Just, too just fancy. a lot of, I mean, I'm very new to the city. I've only been here for about 18 months, but I'm just like, eh, tourist. I gotta go. I can't do it with you. So I try to, I'm, I'm now snobby to the tourists. Yeah, that's fair. When I think I of, think uh, I'm a New Yorker. and you're from Odessa, Texas, right? Yes. From a lot different place than this, about a hundred thousand people, oil country, you know, Odessa Permian. Yeah. They, uh, they were the subject of, was that Friday night lights, Odessa Permian or do I have a different Friday movie? Night in my... No, you're right. That's the, the movie, not the, not the TV series. Yeah, yeah. So, did you, were you part of the football program, or did you? Uh... Well, at that point, the movie was was shot in '88, but my grandfather had had season tickets since the early '70s to Rattler Stadium, that big football stadium in the movie. Um, so, I grew up going to every single game. Uh, you know, on the road, at home, I would show up to my grandpa's house at, on Friday afternoons, and you know, we'd go to the game. You know, wearing all black, of course. Yeah, but that was that was just the culture there. The the town kind of shut down, and those late eighties, early nineties are kind of the the heyday of Permian. Gotcha. The other movie I think of is uh, What do you mean you going to Odessa? The uh, No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yes, <laughs> All Country for No Man, uh, No Country for Old Men, and uh, Ten Cup also. Oh, was, I watched starts, that the other day. He, That's pretty random. Yeah, he starts out hitting golf balls off of like the pump jacks in the, in the first scene. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very, very good golf thing out there. <laughs> but you've lived a lot of places in the last 10 years, right? I mean, run through the list a little bit for me. Um, so since I got into pro ball, um, you know, Arizona, Bakersfield, California, 
Frisco, Texas, North Dallas, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Louisville, uh, Cincinnati. I lived in Austin, mainly in the off seasons, then Portland, um, Nashville, played in Nashville. Um, just a, a big slew all over the, all over the country. And so, uh, I'm sure all those broke you in, especially when you were in Portland, I think when you and I were teammates in 14, right? So that kind of broke you in for the hipster culture, I would assume. (laughs) Austin broke me into that culture a long time ago. That's fair. uh, Yeah, the Austin weirdness uh, broke me in plenty. So did you enjoy the travel of pro ball? I mean, obviously, like, it's exciting, at least it was for me, to see all these new places. But after a while, did it wear on you where you're living somewhere new and having to, like, lay new roots every couple years? Not necessarily. I was one of the the people that enjoyed it. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy um, the hotels all the time, but the travel was just something that, you know, got me to to playing the other game. I never really thought of the travel as bad. You know, sometimes you, you know, as you know, you have like a rain delay, extra inning game, and then you have to get on the bus for eight hours or whatever after that. Um, and those are the ones that are troubling, uh, yeah. you know, for, for everyone involved. But, um, I was, I was a guy that, I mean, I didn't mind the travel at all, especially when there were good teammates to travel with. Um, so the travel was easy for me. Yeah. So what do you like about Brooklyn? What do you, I mean, how does it stack up amongst places you've lived? Uh, I'd say so far, well, at least in this stage of my life. Um, it's probably the best place I've been, um, just because just trying to transition into, you know, everyday life and trying to, you know, acclimate myself to living in one certain place for more than, you know, 12 months. So it's, uh, it's been, it's been difficult, but in a very uh, healthy way. Yeah. Okay, so let's backtrack. So, how did you make it from Odessa to New Mexico, where you played? It was those the uh, Lobos, right? That was your college ball. Yes, University of New Mexico uh, Lobos. But um, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, I was always the small one on the team. I mean, always, even going into pro ball. I think maybe every team I've ever been on, even in maybe indie ball, I was. The smallest guy, um, but I was always a kid. I had an older brother, uh, one year older than me. I was always a kid that, you know, I was seven years old playing with the eight and nine year olds. I was, you know, eight year olds playing with the nine and ten year olds. So I was always not only was I smaller, but I always played against older kids. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one thing I, you know, in hindsight that I had on my advantage. Um, and my dad was my coach and. I remember early on in, in Little League, I would sit the bench and play like one or two innings. I'd play like, the, you know, you know, like the the nerdy kid that that plays right field but only for two innings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was me for like two or three years, and maybe maybe like two years. But my dad's just like, we have older kids; they're better than you. You should practice. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, coming from my dad, not just a normal coach, I was like, damn it, I really want to be good so I could play. <laughs> uh, so I think that, like, an early driving factor for me, like, internally was, uh, you know, that need to, like, be better so I can be on the field. 
Yeah. If that was 2017, your dad would just take you and make his own team. And then you'd play yeah. shortstop all the time. Even though you're left-handed, you'd play shortstop. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age, I would, I would play all nine positions at once. <laughs> if my dad, if my dad willed it. Okay. So tell me about your height. So you kind of alluded to the fact that it was a, maybe a limiting factor when you were a kid. When did you feel like, and what did you do to have it stop limiting you? Because obviously you played Division One baseball, minor league baseball, major league baseball. You know, it never really limited you. What did you do to get back and combat that? I never really thought of it, to be honest. Um, you know, I really just always wanted to play. And I got, you know, I got a lot of shit from uh, other players and opponents. Um, you know, just kind of the normal banter. Uh of wondering why you're on the field because you're so small. But that never, it, you know, in any stage, it never really bothered me. I always just saw myself as a normal player, and I never had a chip on my shoulder about it. You know, I think I think I just wanted to do the job, um, whether it was, you know, as a kid in the outfield or, or pitching. And I always wanted to play and win. And... I thought if I could do that, then you know height wouldn't wouldn't really equate into the uh, you know into the entirety of the decision. Just if he's good enough, then let him out there. Mm-hmm. So, what positions did you play? Obviously, you're pretty limited as a lefty, but I assume you're an outfielder when you were on the mound. Yeah, I modeled myself very young after Ken Griffey. Um, <laughs> you know, had had it, it that, was, that was back in the uh, the Griffey for president in 1996. Um, I had like posters all over the wall and, you know, I was a pretty, pretty decent little outfielder. I was really quick. I thought I tracked down balls really well in the outfield, but you know, from the stands, I probably more looked like a, like a little overconfident midget running around. Um, but I thought I did really well in the outfield and I was a lead off hitter, you know, did a lot of drag bunts, that kind of thing. So I was a, I was a scrappy little player growing up. Would you have, uh, how would your life have been different if you had subscribed to the launch angle stuff that's going on? Could you have launched balls over guys' heads if you had Aaron Judge's launch angle? If I had, I mean, if I had that launch angle, I'd be hitting pop-ups to the warning track <laughs> at best. <laughs> so, I mean, in my head, I thought I would be hitting it over the fence and it'd just be a can of corn. So I don't know if I would have really, uh, it would have really worked for my game. So in in high in high school then, uh, what was your role as a pitcher? Were you starter, reliever? Starter. Um, when I got into uh, high school ball as a freshman, uh, freshmen were still at junior high or middle school in in Odessa. So high school is only sophomore, junior, senior. Well, as a freshman, uh, early in the season, I traveled to tournaments with the varsity, and I did really well. I think in one game. Uh, against a really good Lubbock Monterey, uh, uh, like nationally ranked team, I threw like five innings, or state ranked team threw like five innings. They hit a home run, and I was like, "Oh, of course I'm going to be on the varsity." And uh, you know that didn't happen. I stayed on JV my freshman year, and um, you know my I it was kind of a uh, a weird year where I thought. Um, you know, that I wasn't good enough really to play high school yet, but I knew I was better than the guys that were there. So it was in a weird space of, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, was I small enough or was, you know, was I just not good enough? But, you know, in, in high school, when I got there, I, I did well, but I was an overhand, uh, four-team fastball guy, you know, trying to throw hard. And I probably threw, you know, 84, 85. Um, but overhand curveball, um, you know, pretty straight changeup. Um, but I was a completely different pitcher uh, when I was younger just because I thought I threw hard. And, you know, in high school, you know, throwing low 80s kind of gets it by some guys. So, um, you know, I, I felt like I'm more right on the back then. Yeah. Okay. So when did you make that change then? I made the change in college. Um, you know, after getting recruited and getting into college, um, I had a very rough uh, fall fall semester and fall workouts with them. Um, you know, getting an elevation in Albuquerque, it's over 5,000 feet elevation. So, you know, my, my curveball didn't break as much. My changeup didn't move at all. Um, and they could hit 84, 85. So um, I quickly got beat up and figured I needed to do something different. And the, the uh, pitching coach that was there, Ryan Brewer, he was only there for my fall semester, my freshman year. But, you know, he worked with me on, on changing my arm angle and, and getting the ball to sink. Okay. So then where did – so one of the things uh, for those listening that D-Ray's famous for is his screwball. I mean, you're one of the only players in the last, what, like two decades to throw a screwball, maybe? Um, when did yeah. that come into the picture? Was that part of your remake, and who taught you that? Um, that was part of my remake in my sophomore year. Um, so my freshman year, I think my stats, my freshman year, I think I was, I started uh, like 15 games as a freshman, and I think I had a like a five seven or a five eight ERA, and I went four and seven. Uh, so in all terms, not very good. But for the terms of the Mountain West Conference, pitching in an elevation, it wasn't too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I was a fastball and a curveball guy, and I had nothing else. My changeup flattened out, uh, and I really uh, had nothing else. I had fastball uh, command as best I could. And that was it. So going into my sophomore year, I was working on a changeup, and I just wanted a changeup. And I couldn't quite get uh, the release of it. So I was starting to try new things and trying to starting to pronate, you know, which means turning your wrist outwards instead of inwards, um, kind of like the opposite of a curveball. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to pronate more and more and started to see the spin of my baseball going from kind of side to side, like, uh, like spinning of a basketball, you spin a basketball on your finger, you know, it spins on its side, uh, went from spinning on its side to spinning over the top, almost like a curveball. Um, you know, and that was just due to me really overemphasizing that pronation at release. And very early on when I threw it, it was a very true screwball. Like I could throw it at, a right-hander's belt, and it would come back, uh, you know, for a strike in, you know, the inside part of the plate. So back when I first started it, I had no idea what I was doing with it. It was completely wild, and I was hitting people and throwing it to the backstop. But I knew I had something, and it moved like hell, and I knew I wanted 
I wanted that in my in my repertoire. So do you feel like that became your defining characteristic? I mean, how long did it take you to get from hitting guys and throwing it to the backstop to it being, you know, a weapon that you could use consistently? Well, it took a pretty full season. My sophomore year, um, you know, I won more games. I was eight and five, but my ERA that year was a six one. So, um, you know, I, that was the first year I really unleashed it and I threw it all the time. Uh, I don't know how many walks I had that year, but I think there was a lot. Um, mm. but it took, it took more just trial and error of, uh, really getting release point down and really getting locking my wrist on a pronation that I was comfortable with, not really overdoing it. Um, so it took a long time and, um, you know, what really, what really helped me was, uh, gaining another pitch. So my, I think my sophomore year, I was mainly, uh, fastball screwball. And I had like a, a weird, um, not even a slurve yet, because I, I, that's what I ended up having is a slurve. But once I got a, a good mix of fastball, uh, slurve, and screwball, um, that's when I kind of came into my own as a pitcher. Um, when I finally put those three pitches together, you know, I felt like I could finally dissect the plate um, the way that I wanted to. Okay. Um, so... I think some of the listeners probably need to be filled in about pitching in the thin air. I know I've heard stories from like the Pacific Coast League, which uh, I know you played there as well. But and for example, you know, when, when Noah Syndergaard got called up a couple years ago, I remember looking at his numbers because they've been talking about him and talking about him. Like, oh, this guy Syndergaard, he's almost ready. He's like their phenom. And I'm looking at his numbers and he's got like a five. And I'm like, he's got a five. How is he ready? Quote unquote. But numbers in like the Pacific Coast League and numbers when you're pitching it in New Mexico, uh, they're not normal, right? So what is the kind of like the sliding scale for pitching in thin air? Well, just the, the ball carries a lot more um, on both ends. So if you're if you're a pitcher and you're trying to throw a sinker and you know you're trying to go just under the barrel, um, trying to miss the fat part of the bat, and you're used to your say your fastball, your sinker breaking two or three inches downwards, trying to get that downward tilt. Well, uh, in the elevation, the baseball will just slide more instead of really grab the air and sink. Um, the thin air just, for some reason, will make the ball run instead of sink, and that barrel gets gets caught, and the ball goes to the gap or wherever instead of that little ground ball you're used to, to, to shortstop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've seen in college and pro ball, so it really didn't matter off of, you know, aluminum bats or wood bats. You know, I I could promise you in, in college and even in pro ball, just a nice little easy pop-up to center, and then all of a sudden it hits off the wall, and then all of a sudden it's a triple, and then you're wondering what just happened, and then you have to face more guys like that. So it's just, it can be very daunting to a pitcher, uh, and things can get out of control in a hurry. So a six ERA in New Mexico is equivalent to what if you're pitching in like, you know, a normal, uh, a normal I would say place? Like, I, would, I would say like it's three and a half or a four. See, that, um, that's, that's what people, and again, that's what I don't think people understand is like, that's crazy. That's like two and a half run difference. And you I'm see it all sure over my, those leagues. Yeah, so I think my junior year, I finally did very well. I had a two seven uh, in that in that season. I think the next 
person on our team was in the sixes. So that's ridiculous. The ne- the, ne- the second highest or second lowest ERA in our team was in the sixes. So every year, those teams in that conference uh, they've switched the conference around a little bit now, but it's just the the ERAs are so blown up. Um, because, like I said, things get out of hand in a hurry. You know, just in an inning, if if things are really flat and you don't know where the ball's going, you can easily give up six, seven runs. And, you know, as a starter, uh, I had countless games where I didn't get out of the second inning, just giving up doubles and home runs. And then all of a sudden I'd given up eight runs and I've only gotten four outs. <laughs> and all that tallied up to your, you know, to your score sheet. Uh, can be pretty detrimental to a season. Yeah, that's crazy. So do you feel like having that really breakout senior season where you did 2-7, do you feel like the fact that you did that in New Mexico helped you get drafted? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it kind of honed in. I think that's where I got a lot of my command uh, early in my career was, you know, not really just looking at parts of the plate, you know, outside, inside, really dissecting um you know, certain zones and, and manipulating, uh, hitters a bit more to hit, hit pitches out of the zone. Um, you know, if, you know, if I couldn't get a sinker to really sink, I would just throw it lower. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just that small precision of, of really trying to, um, lock in on exactly the plan that I wanted. So I think I think everything got a little more intricate for me there. You know, I like I said, I was a I thought myself of like a power pitcher kind of uh, in high school, um, but I didn't throw any harder in college or even the rest of my career. I started to look at hitters differently. I started to see their tendencies, and then really started to play with uh, you know the pitches that I had, you know, to kind of attack. And I never really I never really had that until college and you know, honestly getting my ass kicked for two plus years, um, really helps. And, you know, those years didn't feel too good on the ego, but, um, those were necessary to really, um, kind of lock into, to the, the style that I had from then on out. Yeah. And that makes sense. And, and that's something that I've echoed to a lot of different people that I felt like I didn't really change and learn as a pitcher until the stakes were really high, you know, and for me, that was like my last two years in the, or my last three years in the Atlantic league where like everyone was just like, Oh, there's this guy playing the majors, this guy played in triple a, like I was being compared to those guys. So I'm like, I gotta, I have to be better like right now. And with you pitching in that thin air, I mean, you probably felt like crap. If I throw anything over the white of the plate, it's going to be a double. So you probably had to learn like right then and there that if you didn't want to give up seven runs every game, you had to be better where I think that's a really un, like an overlooked thing for youth um, just an amateur baseball in general, where a lot of times, you know, like you're going to be on the team still, you know, you're not getting released right. if you don't play well. Right. So you don't have this like hyper focus on like, God, I have to stop giving up home runs like right now and finding a way to right. do it. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to really find the intricacies, um, in your own game, much less the game in general, but find the intricacies in your own game early in your life, in your career. I, you know, like I said, mine started in college and then, you know, from then on out, it was like, what else can I like take away from people? Um, you know, that would, that'd be beneficial to me. I've always seen the game in the eyes of, of learning and, you know, watching a game and learning, uh, new things and learning different, 
um, uh, scenarios on the field. But, you know, as they, as they, you know, tailored to me stuff that other guys have that I could take, uh, you know, their routines, the way they worked out, the way they, you know, play catch, that kind of thing. I think, um, it's hard to really focus on what can help you on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So the Rangers took you in the 45th round, but the kind of the story goes that one of the scouts really stuck his neck out for you. Is that right? That's right. Um, I was leading up to the draft, you know, there was only like three organizations kind of calling and they didn't want to give me any money at all. Um, and I was a junior at this time and I had a phenomenal year. I went 10 and 0. Uh, I was up for like player of the year in college, uh, up against the likes of like price and Lincecum and those guys. Um, but, um, you know, they were only willing to give me like five grand, like kind of like a senior sign thing. Uh, you know, and initially I just told them like, no, thanks. Like, you know, yeah, I'd rather stay my senior year and, you know, you know, you can give me a plane ticket next year for all I care. Um, so I was being stubborn about it. You know, I, I, I did really well and, you know, I wanted a little bit of money for it. Um, so this guy for the Rangers just pounded me. His name was Rick Schroeder. Uh, he kept pounding me and just being like, he you need to sign, you need to sign. You're going to be in the big leagues and giving me his pitch. And, you know, he, he negotiated for me basically. And, you know, this was after like two and a half weeks after the draft when they've already negotiated with top rounders and, uh, they have the guys that they sign that they want. And here I am in summer school in Albuquerque, um, being stubborn about a few grand, um, but he stuck with me and he got me, I think 20 grand and I signed and went. So very, very grateful to Rick for, for, uh, breaking my stuff in <laughs> There you go. So I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much of a, cause I mean, our mutual friend Zach Clark, you know, he was a, a scout and he said, you know, when he was in the draft room in some of the later rounds, a lot of it's like, Hey, who's got a guy that they really like. And it just comes down to kind of like, Hey, this is what I saw. I, I really think this guy can do it. You know, there's a lot of like pers- personal, um, just passion. You know, I got this guy or I got this guy or this guy. I really like this guy. We really want him for our organization. He's got the right, right. Out, the right outlook, character, all those different things where it's not as maybe cut and dry as it gets lower. And if you have a guy like that in your corner, he could be the, the sole reason, you know, that you get in. So it's, it's a pretty interesting process from what I've heard. Okay, so yeah, then I, go, so go I ahead. can imagine. No, I can imagine in that draft room. I have a, I have a buddy now who's uh, a scout for the Padres, but yeah, I can imagine that that kind of intensity later rounds and you know having a guy stick your neck out for you. Uh, you know, in hindsight, I really can appreciate that. Yeah. So, what were you on? So, what what was the scouting report on you as you started pro, your pro career? What was your velocity, your pitch mix, all that stuff? Uh, velocity mid eighties, um, peaked at 88, anywhere from 88, 82 to 88. Um, just movement. I, I was going in my repertoire at that point was a sinker, um, screwball and slurve. I had no forcing fastball. Didn't want to, I did not want to throw the ball straight. Um, and I came, I think I, I 
had plus command at that time. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely a guy who was not going to throw the ball by anybody. And, you know, they knew that. But I think from what, um, you know, Rick saw and what the Rangers saw too was that I could mix pitches and throw everything for strikes. And, uh, you know, I think at that point too, I had, uh, two average to plus pitches being my, uh, breaking ball, slur for lefties and screwball. Okay. So in your first three years, you moved up pretty quick, right? So after, uh, well, what, in your third year, you were in triple A. Is that right? No, I made it. I mean, so I had a very, uh, quick, um, you know, a, ascent into, you know, pro ball and out of minor league ball. So I signed really late. And once I got into, they sent me straight to rookie ball, straight to, you know, Phoenix, got off the plane and into surprise in 105 degree weather, um, which was the kind of welcome to pro ball moment. Um, but they, they sent their, their top dog at that point, Eric Hurley, to the Futures game. Um, he was a guy who's kind of coming up with uh, Edinson Volquez being kind of the next highly touted guys. So he went to the Futures game, and he was in high A Bakersfield. Um, and I was closing for the rookie ball team down there and just doing really well. And, um, you know, I kind of had all, all of my pitches working at that time. You know, I was very confident just getting drafted and putting on a Rangers uniform. Um, so I was very confident at that time. Went and they decided to send me to high eight to cover for him for four days. Um, and I think at that point I threw in three of those games and multiple innings every time. And seemingly, I think I had struck out almost everyone. Um, so I, I had a very quick spent of, you know, throwing with grown men and, you know, kind of skipping three different levels in minor league baseball, which is unheard of for a 45th round guy. Um, and so what happened was the manager and one of the players, uh, Ben Harrison, uh, they sent me back and Ben Harrison went up to the manager and he was like, Hey, we have to have that kid back here. Um, and our manager was like, you know what? You're right. We, we have to, he has to come back. So in the matter of a plane ride from Bakersfield, Phoenix, uh, you know, I had a voicemail on my phone when I landed in Phoenix and they said, pack your bags, you're going to go back. Um, so that was kind of a, a a very proud moment for me is, you know, I could show, I showed very quickly uh, in that those professional days that I, I could really do the job and, you know, against anyone. And I think that segues well into the story that you told me and, and the rest of us in the bullpen about your big, de- big league debut. So I've heard from most guys like when they get their first shot, it's not like this high pressure situation, you know, they'll wait for like an eight to one game or something and they'll throw a, a meaningless eighth inning or whatever it is just to, and, and you know for good reason that's a it's a huge jump i've heard everyone's like heart is pounding out their chest uh but but your big league debut was not like that is that correct yeah it was a little intense um yeah this was 2008 i the season before i got traded or the winter before i got traded from the rangers to the reds um and started in double a made it pretty quickly to triple a um 
And in AAA, I was doing really well, um, just having a lot of fun. You know, I was 23 years old at the time. And, you know, just having, you know, the most amount of fun I could have, I was kind of living living the dream, even though I didn't know it. Um, and doing really well, and all of a sudden, Kent Merker, um, the old veteran, uh, strained his, his back or needed needed something to do with his back and needed surgery, needed to go on a 60-day. So I think I had a sub-2 ERA at the time. And... You know, my name was my name was chosen to put on the roster and and get to Philadelphia where the debut was. So I had just thrown the pat the previous two nights, um, getting the call up and flying to Philly. I was excited, obviously, like calling everybody I could. Um, my parents didn't end up making it, but you know, I didn't need any more extra pressure. I think the pressure was was palpable. Um, Getting getting into Philly, you know, throwing the previous two nights, I think I have the night off. I'm enjoying it. Got my seats propped up. Um, all the assholes in the Philly bullpen were just yelling at me, um, wondering why they brought their kid to, to, to work day. <laughs> uh, so, you know, just getting the normal spiel from the fans there, which is great. I love that kind of uh, banter, too. But, uh, you know, this is 08 when the Phillies were – you know, World Series bound. And I think it was the sixth inning and Harang gives up a pinch hit to Greg Dobbs to lead off the inning. And I'm, I still have my feet up on the chair. I'm, you know, just looking at the spectacle around, you know, Citizens Bank. I think it was like Tuesday and it was, you know, 40,000 plus people there, uh, you know, just trying to soak it in as best I can. And you know this feeling as much as I do. When the phone rings, you and you just know it's you. Mm-hmm. And regardless if it is for you or if it's not for you, you like your feet get on the ground quick. You're you're like mentally just running sprints. Um, but the phone rang, and I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is a this is a pretty intense game. It's like three to one, and. I was like, no, nah, I'll probably have the day off. It's probably not me. And <laughs> obviously, my name gets called, and I am like Speedy Gonzalez down there throwing. I think I was ready in like three or four pitches. Um, at that point, too, uh, the top of the lineup was coming up, and Jimmy Rollins hits a double. So in one batter that I got called up, or I got the phone rang, one batter, I told him I was ready. Double was hit, and I was in the game. That's crazy. Um, and I was probably probably the most nervous I've I've ever been. Um, where the the bullpens in Philadelphia are in right center field, and they're massive. They're kind of decked on top of each other. Um, so it took me a while to figure out that I was in the game, and then walking down those steps seemed like a lifetime. And then, you know, it's kind of like a movie scene where there's, you know, two field crew guys opening up these gates, you know, that kind of opened up to the field. And, you know, that was kind of what made me like the most nervous I've ever been getting into a game, like forgetting all of what my preparation was and just kind of having that like aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have to run a mile into the field. Uh, with everybody yelling and 
you know, I on deck I see Victorino, the number two hole guy in the lineup, and then I like start, you know, I shake it off and start to get locked in a little bit more. Um, but throughout that whole process, I was just, you know, I was like a little kid, and you know, as as much as I would like to say I was focused and like ready to go, you know, that two minute intro of warming up and getting in the game was, you know, was kind of everything for me. Yeah. Um, but no, once I stepped on the mound, it was kind of business as usual and, uh, second and third, nobody out, uh, two, three, four guys up for Philly, uh, got Shane Victorino, first guy faced to ground out on a change up to shortstop, no, no run scored. Uh, and then wisely, um, walk Chase Utley to load the bases. Uh, which he ended up being my all-time nemesis. I don't think I ever got him out. <laughs> no. Okay, so you have the bases loaded, um, and what, Ryan Howard's coming up? Bases loaded, Ryan Howard's up, um, and I get him to a 2-2 count, strike him out on a on a cutter away. Uh, so two outs. Then I have Pat, the bat, Burrell up. Uh, I throw him a first-pitch screwball, middle-middle, and he tomahawked it uh, about 400 foot just south of the left field pole. Uh, so <laughs> it quickly could have been a grand slam debut. Um, but thankfully, uh, it was slow enough that he pulled it foul. Uh, but I ended up getting him uh, looking at, a, at an 84 mile an hour fastball uh, on the inside part of the plate. So I came away unscathed on a. Uh, a full uh, bases loaded endeavor in Philly. That's yeah. That's probably the least typical big league debut of all time. That's pretty amazing. So I want. I'm curious to know of your pitch sequence to Pat Burrell because so few people pitch inside. It's like a lost art. You know, no kids these days pitch inside. They go way, way, way. And you threw eight an 84 mile per hour fastball inside to Pat Burrell, who was a right hander with the bases loaded in yeah. Philadelphia. And that's friggin' amazing. So t- take me through that bat a little bit more. Well, like I said, the first pitch screwball was pulled foul uh, and hit very far. So I knew he would be looking for that later in the at-bat. And, you know, at that point, I, I thought I could have an out pitch if I made it made a better uh, screwball location. But So I went first pitch screwball, uh, pulled foul, Second pitch was a sinker far, far away. Um, didn't really get anywhere close with it. I think I was a little too nervous to make it, to get it over the, the part of the plate. 1-1, uh, um, I throw a cutter um, that was supposed to be inside. It ended up high, uh, up uh, up out of the zone. Uh, so it's 2-1, and, um, you know, I'm shaking off pitches. And, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out what to throw next and, you know, go to my strength again. And on 2-1, I throw a screwball. Uh, again, he pulls it foul. Uh, it was down, you know, middle of his shin, uh, and he pulled it foul. So I could see him really starting to lean over the plate and really trying to get uh, a fix on the screwball. So um the, the the next pitch that came like on a two two count was fastball in, and you know it's one of those times that if you make the pitch, 
uh, it's just complete the perfect pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, inside pitches need uh, need that command, need that control to to get in there and not be too fine or too nervous. Just forcefully throw it on the inside part of the plate, and you know, got caught him leaning over, and uh, you know, eighty four probably looks like ninety four to him. And so you talk about, and, and what I love about this conversation is how you keep talking about how you read hitters and you see like, so when you say you saw him leaning over the plate, that's extremely subtle. I mean, for those of you listening, it's not like, you know, in Little League Baseball where they like, you know, he'll, he'll take an extra step forward in the box or he'll visibly, obviously lean over, but it's usually a really subtle thing, right? Absolutely. And it's more or less, uh, it's more or less, uh, on his on his load uh you know and i'm focusing on a certain part of the plate but you know i guess subconsciously i'm watching him as well and watching kind of where his body is set up and that last one you know the the two one screw ball i was talking about middle of the shin um you know i saw him eagerly reaching down and really trying to lean over to keep his hands uh, you know, inside of the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very, you know, it's, it is very subtle, but it's one of those things you're just kind of outfitted to do. Uh, you know, it's kind of inherent once you figure it out, you know, it's very, it's very delicate. Um, but once you see it and you're certain about it, um, you know, that makes you a little more confident in, in your pitch selection. Yeah. And it's one of those things, you know, I was obviously like I, I pitched, very differently than you did. And for a lot of my career, I didn't either, I just didn't really know that a lot of those things existed. Like I, I guys would talk about it, but it's like, until you see it, you don't really see it. Like you're not, you're not looking for it cause you don't know it exists. And then once you do see it and you do look for it, cause like you said, where maybe your career's on the line or you're pitching in thin air and every mistake is a, is a long ball. Then once you see it once, it's like, okay, like your brain gets it and it's starting to like hone in on it every time. Um, so it's just, it's really interesting to me. Like there's so many guys who were so much better like you and, and Clark. And, um, there are just like so many guys who are really deep into reading hitter tendencies. And I feel like I just got a little bit of it at the last couple of years of my career, but it was just such a fascinating thing to feel like, oh, I know what he's trying to do now. So then I can right. do this, 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 or this. And then I liked what well, you said, which was, I want to go to my strength here. So one of the things I talk to some of the young kids is about is like choosing your strengths first rather than, okay, this is this guy's weakness. Like I think he's looking for this, but if that's not your pitch, if you're not good at making that pitch, I mean, would you choose that pitch? So if like you think, oh, right. I got to go inside to Pat Burrell here. But if like for me, I couldn't throw inside to a lefty. My whole career, I would leave that ball over the inner half. I couldn't get right. into lefties. So even when I was like, oh, I got to go inside to this guy, I'd be like, wait right. a second. That's, that, that's probably not going to happen if I try, and then he's going to take me deep. Um, what did you think about your strengths? I mean, did you sort of pitch like that where you only went to your strengths, or would you really go after guys' weaknesses, or what was your kind of game plan? Well, you, to, to, follow, to follow up on what you just said, I'm not going to get beat with my fourth best pitch. Um, you know, when it's, when it's the at-bat is on the line, I'm not going to throw you my fourth best to get you out. Uh, even if it is the right pitch to throw, I'm not going to do it. I'd rather be confident in in what I'm doing. And, and instead of not being confident, 
and messing the pitch up. Um, when, uh, you and I have a lot different styles as to where I relied on movement and command. I think that's kind of what carried me throughout my entire career um, is having command and, um, you know, obviously not just being able to throw strikes, but really um, being able to to dissect the plate and read hitters and look at tendencies and find the subtleties that you don't see. Um, mm-hmm. So, and as, as far as you go, I mean, you threw the ball hard and you had, you know, kind of like power breaking stuff. So you were, you were more forceful in your, uh, in your approach than I was. I, I wanted to mess with you and then I wanted off of what I see, I wanted to get you out with something. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know yet. And as far as you go, I mean, that 95, 90, 90 plus speaks, uh, you know, very well, uh, located in the first pitch of the at bat. Um, so you could be a little more forceful and miss your spot as to where I relied uh, solely on hitting my spot. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then, so one of the things I, I liked that you, one of the, another story that you told in the bullpen was that after that first outing, well, Hey, did, did Aaron Harang buy you like a, a Rolex or something for getting him out of that jam? Uh, he, uh, he bought me a suit. He bought me a nice, a nice suit. Uh, he, 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 you know, he just kind of, Kidded with me a little bit, but you know, he said next road trip we'll go shopping. And uh, you know, you know, with a kid who really didn't have any money at the time, and you know, just just getting, you know, his debut, it was like the coolest thing ever to me. Yeah. Um, so you know, those guys uh, on that Reds team really, really took care of me. Um, so that was that was really fun. And did you say it was Arthur Rhodes who really kind of took you under his wing? Yeah, well, it was two guys. It was Arthur Rhodes and uh, David Weathers. And they both played, you know, 17, 18, whatever years in the big leagues. They were relics at that point. Um, but still, I think Arthur was throwing – he threw cutters all day long and threw, I think at 40 or 39 years old, he was throwing 90 to 93. Uh, and as a lefty, that is intense to yeah. face. Um, so he took care of me a big time, um, you know, just from, from the road trips to going out at night to making me, you know, eat lunch with them before, before, uh, games, um, him to David Weathers, you know, talked with me every day in the bullpen and, you know, I asked him as many questions as I could. And I was really lucky to have not one, but two. Uh, good veteran guys on my side and you know they kind of meant everything to me that that first year uh in 09 with them so how long do you feel like it took you to kind of adapt to you know become a big leader when did you feel like you not that you wouldn't feel like you belong there because i'm sure you know with your confidence you felt like you deserved to be there and belong there but when did you feel like yeah like i'm a big leader this is kind of normal to me um it was in the middle of 2009 um, so in 2008, I made my debut um, in Philly in June, and then I was quickly sent back down after that, and then called back up in September. Um, I don't know how many outings I had, but you know, in the, the small stint that I had, I think I had like a seven ERA. Um, but I had a really incredible spring training in 2009, and I broke with the team that year. Um, you know, and everything was still very new to me. Um, as far as the travel goes, you know, the treatment, you know, uh, 
and, you know, is still like a little child. But once I could finally settle in and really try and, you know, calm my emotions a little bit, you know, from town to town or from series to series, um, that's kind of when I felt uh, more at ease, um, you know, on the day to day of, of, of the, of the schedule. Mm -hmm. And then after 2010, you moved on, you got traded to the Brewers, correct? No, this was 2010. I, I broke it in the big leagues with the Reds, uh, on their opening day roster. And then I got sent down and I was in AAA the rest of the year. Okay. Uh, so it was 2011. Uh, I was in AAA first with the Reds. And then sometime in May, I was taken off the 40-man roster, and the Milwaukee Brewers claimed me off the 40-man and sent me to Nashville. Um, and then the very tail end of that season in Nashville, I got traded uh, for Francisco Rodriguez for K-Rod uh, to the Mets. So in that 11th season, I went from Reds claimed by the Brewers to trade it to the Mets. And so tell me about the journey of being on three different teams in that three-year span, going up and down, being traded. Uh, you know, how did that affect you? Was it easy, you know, connecting with the new team? I mean, tell me about it. Well, I think uh, by the time at 11 with the Reds, um, I was – I still think I was a really good pitcher at that time. Um, but I was sent down, I think, with the first wave of cuts um, after spending the last year and a half uh, with the big club. So I was frustrated about that. And, uh, you know, really thankfully, um, the Brewers were there to claim me uh, at a certain time in May. So I was just really excited about the, the idea of a new team. And the Brewers at that time had zero lefties in their bullpen. Um, uh, actually, they had one a guy that we both played with, Zach Braddock, which I hope we talk about him a little later. Um, we absolutely have to. He's still one of my favorite. I'm still not sure he was real, that he was ever real. He might have just been like a ghost yeah, living amongst we us. We might have con conjured him in our imagination. Um, but with, with the Brewers... Um, they they got me up to the big league level uh, for two days, got my ass kicked, and went back to AAA. Um, but just the presence of it being a new team was very exciting to me. You know, I spent all my all my time really with the Reds, and you know the prospect of leaving them was sad, but getting to a new group um, was refreshing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I I didn't really miss uh, the Reds at that time. I was excited to to move on and, and see what else I could do. It didn't really work out with the Brewers. Um, I ended up not being the pitcher that they wanted. I think they went through the majority of that season without a left in the bullpen period, which is a little crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, but then uh, did really well. So in the PCL, I ended up, you know, having like a mid to low two, um, and the Mets ended up like liking me and um, decided. I was a player to be named later. Um, so getting traded, uh, you know, to a big market team like New York was, you know, was exponentially excited. I wanted none, nonetheless to be in the, in the big leagues. Um, but on a team like New York, uh, I feel like I could have, could have really flourished. 
Yeah. So it was exciting. It was an exciting year. And then you had some time in the big, big leagues with the Mets in 2011. How was the experience playing in New York? Um, it was phenomenal. Um, it's kind of, a, you know, in baseball terms, uh, just playing on a big market team is like a you know, dream come true. Uh, and so, I, you know, I grew up loving the Rangers and getting drafted by the Rangers. I think all of my fandom of baseball went out the window when they traded me just because the business side started coming up. And now that I was involved in the business stuff, like just being a fan of a team just wasn't really in my in my mentality anymore. So just playing uh, and getting able to play on a big market team was, was incredible. And, you know, you can make a, a more of a name for yourself um, making it and, you know, being a team guy with, with, you know, say the, the Mets or the Yankees or, you know, LA, a big team. So I was excited about it. And, you know, the times that, that, that September I threw for them in uh, September, I did really well. So I went to the off season, um, uh, you know, really excited about, um, where it was headed. And then, cause I'm always curious about this. Where do they put you up? You know, when you're, when you're a Met, where'd you live? Do you have an apartment? Do they find that stuff for you? Were you in the team hotel or what was it like? There was a hotel that I could have stayed in the team hotel in like Manhattan, or there was like a holiday inn, um, right across basically the, the BQE, the highway from the stadium. Um, so I stayed in a hotel for a couple of days, but I had played with Jason Isringhausen, Izzy, um, before with the Reds. And he was there and, you know, closing up some games. So, you know, I, he said, just come live with me in Long Island. So yeah, for that month of September, I got to, to hang out with Jason Isringhausen and, um, just laugh at him for, for the month. So that was the ideal. And then speaking of, of laughing at teammates, let's, let's spend a couple minutes on Zach Braddock because <laughs> you knew him better than I did. We both spent a year with him in Camden um, but tell the world who Zach Braddock is. Okay. Well, Zach Braddock is, uh, a Jersey, Jersey man, uh, left-handed flamethrower. The first time I ever saw the guy, um, pro was in Nashville with the Brewers and he was in a little, uh, had some issues with the Brewers of, you know, showing up where he needed to be at the right time. But, uh, when I got moved to the Brewers, he was in the big leagues with them and throwing mid nineties and throwing nothing but fastballs. And, you know, as a lefty, that is very, you know, very powerful stuff. Um, and he was a thousand miles an hour and there was just elbows and knees flying all around. It was impressive to watch. Um, for the first time I saw him throw, he, I think he threw eight fastballs and like hit a guy and struck out the next two. And it was just, it was just like very, uh, alarmingly beautiful to watch. <laughs> <laughs> so revisit, we revisit when we get to Camden, uh, you know, and I, and I hear he's going to be on the team and I'm, you know, thoroughly excited about this guy. He was just an eccentric character. I mean, one of those one of those genius minds that you know can dissect and put things uh, together, and you know, in a mere frames of, of a thought. 
And, you know, that was kind of like one of the best games we, we played down in the bullpen in Camden was, where is Braddock? <laughs> My favorite, and like, it's, well, I have two favorite stories, but the image of Zach that will forever, forever live in my brain is walking into the clubhouse in, I mean, it could be any inning. It could be the second inning or the fifth inning, yeah. and he's almost naked, rubbing yeah. his entire upper body up and down with Everywhere. burning red-hot yeah. liniment, and he looks at you like as if he was a raccoon that you just shined a light on as he was, like, ravaging your trash can. Yeah. Like, you and weren't supposed had, to see he this. Had, <laughs> he, had one of the, he had one of those bodies that the hair went from beard to toes. <laughs> and then and then you add just red hot like watch like you just go in and watch him like rubbing his upper thighs in red hot it was amazing <laughs> you know and he would be you know yeah like that was a genuine question where's Braddock because you know he's out there doing something fun and I want to go see what he's doing and join in <laughs> he was quite and we would sit down in the bullpen and be like I wonder if Braddock knows origami and we ask him, and he goes, give me a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. It was stuff like that that I could not believe my eyes when it came to Braddock. He could be under, the, under any – he could be somewhere under the, uh, the ballpark, under the bleachers, yeah. finding – pulling some, like, old series of pipes and then constructing yeah. them into, like, a makeshift robot that would then, like, bring us bubble gum in the bullpen. Like, he could do yeah, that. Yeah, digging, digging dirt to get these pipes to build like a mouse trap so we could have jelly beans or something. <laughs> it was just, and, and the mound work he used to do was precision mound work. He would tamp, he would water, he would rake, and it was just precise. And I loved, and I loved watching him work that look on his face when he was locked in. I mean, I love that guy. He was, he was phenomenal. I miss him. I mean, I really, really wish, Zach, if you're out there, if this gets to you, I want you to come on the podcast. Um, but for me, like the penultimate Zach moment was when we were in Long Island and we were wondering again, where's Braddock? And he had, uh, you know, some, some sleeping uh, issues. Like I think he has a sleep, sleep disorder. So yeah. he would also often come to the ballpark just exhausted. And right. that was sometimes a part of his lateness. Like he wouldn't show up on time and it wasn't entirely right. his fault. Like, and he, right, he described right. it to me once. He's like, man, I got a lot of, I got a lot of crap for it. And people were just like, dude, just show up on time. But he's like, imagine that you haven't slept in two days. You're the most tired you've ever been. And you just fell asleep at 5 a.m. And then your alarm rings at 7 a.m. He's like, that's right. like how, that's like how, that's my life right now. So it's hard to relate to that, but so we were in Long Island and, uh, you know, he had driven up there himself rather than taking the team bus, which was perfectly fine. Like a lot of guys did that, but, yeah. uh, he shows up on time and then he just disappears for, like the first five innings. <laughs> and again, it's like, where's Braddock? And then we see him. That's a great game. And then we see him. He's, he's dragging a huge trash can out of the maintenance shed. <laughs> and we're like, oh my God, what is he doing with that huge trash can? And he, we, we just see him drag it up the street. Because in Long Island, the, the visitor's bullpen is over right. the left field fence, and you can see yeah. the uh, maintenance stuff. And then there's a little side road that goes back up to the main parking lot. And then the <laughs> visitor's uh, clubhouse is right there. So he's dragging this trash yeah. can upstairs. And we're like, oh, my Lord, what's happening? <laughs> so then we all have to go up, and we go up there. And then what do we find? But 
he had sterilized this trash can over like a two inning period. So he cleans it out immaculately. And then he tries to fill it all the way up with ice water because he needed to do a contrast bath. And there was no tub (laughs) in the visitor's locker room because contrasting was one of his big things that he learned from Trevor Hoffman (laughs) with the Brewers. So he was trying to make his own contrast bath. And he 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 was very dejected when we got up there because he couldn't get enough ice or enough hot water, one of the two, to make it work. And I'm laughing because obviously the listeners can't really picture him. I mean, this is a guy who would sweat when it's cold just because he's running at a different level. I could just see him sweating, dragging trash that to, cl- to clean trash <laughs> and then use that cleaned trash bin. Uh, it's amazing. It's a, quite the sight in my head. Uh. I think one of my, one of my favorite braddock stories because it was just over the course of one game and he would have like little projects you know through the day and we would egg him on to be like hey braddock i think the fence in the outfield is is broken you know go check it out i remember him like fidgeting with that fence like dragging it back and forth for like four innings straight he was just trying to get the the fence off the hinges in the game to fix it and it took him like four innings, and he did not fix it at all. I think it was a little <laughs> more broken than when he found it. But just like looking at him down there and then him like sizing up the fence, really like computing it in his head, it was just such a sight. I'm glad I got to see all these things. And on top of all that, I mean, he's just such a genuine, caring guy. He's a great teammate. He was, and he was just an athlete unlike any any of us. I mean, the yeah. most athletic guy on the team, Zach made that guy look like a chump. You know, and you look at super, him. Yeah. Super like genuine. A, yeah. Yeah, it, had those long legs, like his waist was up at his neck. Like he was a, a genuine uh, athlete. And he had, it looked like he had a coat hanger in his shirt at all times. I mean, just like <laughs> the widest shoulders of, of anyone yeah. I'd ever met. And it was fascinating when we had pitchers BP. And this is a, you know, obviously like, I mean, you oh. played with tons of freak athletes, but, you know, a lot of these guys that throw super hard, they can also just hit, just destroy a baseball. They can destroy a golf yeah. ball. They can throw down dunks and, you know, play and pick up basketball. But we had pitchers BP. Yeah. And all the pitchers were like, ah, ha, ha. You know, we're like a couple guys hit like one out. You know, they squeak one out. I didn't hit any because I'm a chump. And Zach gets up there <laughs> and he's threatening the lights down the right field line. I mean, just, just from this weird yeah. swing from like his hip, kind of like the way Chase Utley held the bat. Just yeah. absolutely destroying balls, almost hitting the light tower, like the actual lights on the light tower in right field. Yeah, I, like when he put the bat in his hands, it looked like a toothpick. He was like that strong with his hands and wrists that he was just like fluttering it around like it was just a wand. It was just crazy. He hit like nine balls out. And at that moment, we we're like, he has the most power on this team yeah, of, of everyone, debatable. not just not just the uh, the yeah. hitters, but yeah, it was debatable. Yeah. There was probably one guy who had more pop than him, but it was Maybe. terrifying. It was terrifying, and yeah. uh, and of course, naturally, he's the his great grandfather is um, the Cinderella man. Yeah, not, yeah, he's the Cinderella man. Boxer. Is it Jack Braddock? I think it was Jack Braddock. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so crazy. Anyway, yeah, he was he was one of those he was one of those. Uh, teammates that you you know had kind of had to 
to gravitate towards, but you had to find them first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hey, uh, I'm going to give you time for one more story if you got one. Any other one crazy teammates? Story. Any other? Um, well, I mean, there's plenty of stories about me being small. Um, funny stories. Uh, I guess the one... Uh, was in the bullpen, I think in Louisville and AAA, I think it was in 2010. Um, and I wish I could remember his name. Humongous catcher. He was in the big leagues for a bit. Um, anyway, he was in the bullpen. He wasn't catching that day. He was uh, sitting in the bullpen uh, waiting for the relievers to kind of get loose. And I, I would go throw with the outfielders to kind of loosen myself up. Well, the bullpens are kind of like the uh, uh, like the handicap walkway, so you know a makeshift bullpen, if you will. So very narrow passage, and coming back in, running back in uh, from the half inning, I walk into this you know this walkway, and our catcher is sitting you know in the seat, in the only seat that's out there, and it's hard to get around his big big body. So he ended up grabbing my sweatshirt and like hugging me and like sitting me on his lap. And like, I kind of sat there for a second and was like, I was like, ha ha, like, this is funny. And then I tried to like shoo away and there was no getting away from this guy. You know, his biceps were bigger than my, my face. So there was no budging from him. And I didn't know what's happening. So I was sitting on a grown man's lap in a bullpen with like six guys uh and like right near right near the stand so i was feeling really awkward and i had no idea what was happening and um so i start just joining conversation normally and i start to see the other people like giggle and looking at me and looking at the catcher and i'm like looking at him and like wondering what's so funny and I don't get it, so I keep watching the game. I keep chatting away. While <laughs> oh, you're so still sitting on his lap. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's laughing at me, and I'm not saying anything funny. <laughs> so I keep talking, and I look at him, and he's, like, kind of moving his mouth, like, mumbling almost, but not saying anything. And I, like, I keep talking and look at him and look at them. So I, like, quickly, slowly, rather, find out that, He's the ventriloquist, and I'm the puppet sitting on his lap. So he's just, every time I open my mouth, he's, like, mumbling and has his hand up my shirt. And he's just just puppeteering me. Uh, So when I finally figured out, he's starting to, like, turn his hand in my jacket so I'm looking at certain things and, like, tilting my head down and up. So I was truly, you know, the puppet for, you know, for about a half an inning. And there was no getting off his lap because he was uh, about 100 times stronger than I was. So I was at the will of my ventriloquist. Good God. That's an amazing story. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of funny little, like, stories like that. But uh, that was pretty damn good. <laughs> well, hey, give uh, give everyone some ways to follow up with you because with you, I know I follow you on Instagram uh, or you on other social media and you work with pitchers in the Brooklyn area, right? I do. I work at a, a facility in Ozone Park called Premier 
uh, performance baseball and doing uh, instruction and about to start a driveline program. So anyone in the Brooklyn area wanting to gain some velo, uh, I'll be there. Um, but I'm on Instagram, but for totally different purposes. Uh, but no other social media upon that. Um, so try to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Braddock. Where, where's D-Ray? Yeah. Yeah. Try. Well, hey, man, thanks for um, yeah. coming on the coming on the show. Um, this is an awesome conversation. I mean, we should do this again sometime. You have so many good stories. And like I said, I appreciate you sharing some of your insight into not just, you know, the physical stuff, but, but the pitching stuff. Because I think that's really, really overlooked. And, uh, you know, for people in the New York area, you know, you should dial D-Ray up because you're not going to get that kind of that kind of wisdom, you know, elsewhere. You know, you made a lot out of a out of a small frame and you know, lower velocity. And I mean, you killed it for years. I mean, your career major league average, or I'm sorry, ERA is, you know, you're three, seven, two over a hundred, 101 innings in the big leagues. I mean, that's a big deal. So, um, you know, you can't, well, yeah, I think, you can't uh, find that you know, I think, we, I think we both touched on just, um, you know, just kind of having, um, you know, a style that you can kind of own and, um, you know, really making it work for you. But, um, you know, just trying to figure out something, some pitches to be effective and then being confident about those pitches. And, you know, I think a lot of things can really happen from there, but I, you know, it takes a while. Everything takes development and there's a big process and, and, uh, you know, year by year. So, you know, it's, it's all, it's all a process. When we played together in Camden, I was 30 years old and you were, you know, 28 and we were still learning the process. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a, a never-ending, non-stop thing. Yep. All right, man. Well, hey, this was great. Again, thank you for coming on, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks a lot. We'll do it again and share more Braddock stories. All right. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Dear Baseball Gods, and we'll see you here next week.